Miracy. There's always going to be a thousand fires that are burning. There's always going to be a thousand things that are worth doing. It's not a question of what's worth doing or not worth doing. It's all worth doing, but we can't do it all. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarifying their priorities, energizing their organizations, and building cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to executives who lead with intention. These top business leaders exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the positional power they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility and accountability. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and their stakeholders, they also prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We get the benefit of learning from their challenges and successes over their human journey. My guest today is Miranda Levers. Miranda's the co-founder and former COO, Chief Operating Officer of Thinkific, which is an online platform that enables entrepreneurs to create and sell online courses, build vibrant communities, and monetize memberships. To date, more than 50,000 entrepreneurs and small businesses have taught over, get this, 100 million students worldwide using the Thinkific platform. In 2021, Thinkific went public, back in the days when we had tech companies going public, with a valuation greater than a billion dollars. But just as important, the company did this while approaching business differently. And in doing so, it earned recognition as one of Canada's most admired corporate cultures in the growth category, and I think also a great place to work in Canada. So two things to be super proud of. In February of 2023 this year, Miranda transitioned out of her COO role and is now an advisor to Thinkific out of the day-to-day running of the company. And this step away from the public company leadership has helped her to refocus on her own passion which is much like mine, and that is helping small business entrepreneurs build companies around their passions. There's a lot more to Miranda's eclectic career, but we'll dig into that as relevant in a minute. So with that huge preamble, welcome to the show, Miranda. Thank you for coming in to dive into what you've learned over the arc of your own leadership journey. Thanks so much, Sharon. I'm really delighted to be here. Super. So we could start, if you want to, with your pre-thinkific career which it was described to me as a bit eclectic, including some corporate work, beekeeping, seven-figure side hustle, film production, and more. I think photography as well, right? (laughs) Yes. So I love this because I am the uber generalist when it comes to what do we need to know how to run companies. We need to know a lot about a lot of things. Give us a little kind of quick touch across the arc of the leadership and how this all led to your co-founding Thinkific. I'd love to. And yes, it is funny when you hear that list, but it's nothing if not relatable to a broad swath of folks who maybe have touched on one of those things but haven't done the tech company launch as I have. I like to tell folks that my entrepreneurial journey started when I was seven or eight years old, when I was hustling at the end of my driveway with a craft stand and lemonade. Now, of course, there were no cars driving down our very empty (laughs) dirt road, but if they were there, I was ready to hustle. My background, there is a common thread, believe it or not, and it really comes down to a love and frankly, an infatuation with small business and people who are passionate about what they're doing and an early exposure to tech and all of the things that tech can bring. So my dad actually did a computer science degree starting in 1988. And that meant that even as a kid, I was exposed to technology and was the one who was introducing all my friends to the internet as that became more of a thing. And so I was really, really embedded in technology from a very early age. 
And my family on one side were farmers and on the other side were beekeepers, which is really that small business, hard work, roll up your sleeves, self-reliance that is required to make it as a small business owner. And so it is a somewhat natural, you know, atypical path that my career has balanced between technology and very small business. And as much as I had my own small businesses along the way, I figured out very early on that even more than building my own businesses, I was really just in love with helping people lean into what they were passionate about and saw that often when somebody is passionate about a thing, they know their thing, whether that's they're a yoga instructor or a beekeeper or anything in between. But they may not know and understand business. And that was a thing that really came naturally to me. And so my husband, my very right brain creative husband, who was interested in photography and videography, I built that business for him to enable him to do what he loves to do. But I used to get asked a lot to go into consulting. And the reality is, and I struggled with this, which is small businesses don't know that they need consultants, cannot afford consultants, and they only have two hands, meaning that even if they know all of the things that they should be doing for their business, they can't implement all of it. And so as I sat with that problem space, that is actually how I came to spend the last, you know, almost a decade of my life focusing on Thinkific because it was a way to serve these small business owners that I so deeply cared about with my technology background in a way that gave them an extra set of hands. And in a way, I mean, I think as an entrepreneur, similar to some of those that you're probably describing and thinking about, although I've always been in the business world, I know that it can be really hard in the early days when it's just you. That's the essence of small business is it's a one-person shop. Early on, it's hard to ask for help, know who to turn to for help. And so I have shared the experience with so many others that finding the right sources of support really does help not just for you to expand your business, but to feel like your team is big enough that you've got people you can collaborate with and depend on. So I know how important Thinkific has been to so many of my colleagues and peers. So I'm curious if we could dig into a little bit, Miranda, what some of the ways are that Thinkific specifically envisioned and built the business differently so that you would have that kind of culture that eventually earned national recognition? I love that you asked that. And it's funny because it's easy with hindsight to look back and say, oh, is this and this and this. But in analyzing, well, what did we actually do early on? And frankly, like probably the biggest thing was early on, we just wanted to treat our team the way that we wanted to be treated. And that sounds so simple. And yet, let me give you a couple of examples. When I met my co-founders and we really were just sort of heads down building, it certainly never would have made any sense for anybody to watch a clock or question what I was doing or raise a flag if I wanted to grab a beer in the middle of the day and keep working or whatever those things were. And as we started to build a team, it would have never made any sense for us to start treating the team that we brought on any different than we were already working together. And so that meant that we really did have a high level of trust and autonomy with our team and the recognition that we're all just human. At the beginning of Think Effect, I was still nursing my oldest son, and that meant I can come into the office. Some days I can't. Some days you have to leave in the middle of the day because we're all juggling busy lives. Well, I think people who listen to this podcast are always interested in, well, what did you do? Like, what was that secret sauce? So I like if we can share like a tactic or two or a story just to give them something tangible that they can maybe consider applying. Happy to. I'll start with a quick story and then I'll give a really good tactic that actually continues to this day. On the story front, one of the first times that I realized that we were in fact doing things differently was when we had added a few team members and were finally in the position to bring in a group benefits plan. And I remember sitting down with our broker and trying to stretch our budget as much as humanly possible to build the best package that we could to ensure that our team uh, was supported in these ways. And we'd done all of this work, stretched even a little bit outside of our comfort zone of just was important to us that our team was well taken care of. And we went through this whole process and then they closed the binder. They put it away and they pulled out another binder and they said, OK, great. So that works for the team. So now let's talk about the executive package. And I didn't even understand the words that were coming out of her mouth. It took me a minute to be like, 
well, no, 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 we're going to do this. And we set this one up and we set the, like, we did it all. She's like, no, 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 that's what we're going to do for the team. But for founders and for future C-suite, you want to have the more robust benefit package. And it was so, like, the words didn't resonate because in my mind, if I was going to make any different decision, it was going to be, how do I give more to my team than how do I give more to me? And so it was like this moment where it's, wait, like, why would I build something that is better for me and then my team have a different experience or a different level of coverage for them and their families? And that was one of the first sort of external indicators that not every business sort of approached things the way that we did. From a tactical perspective, one of the most effective things that we did early on and continues to this day is we introduced a cycle and a drumbeat of asking our team for input on their experience in the ways of a net promoter score internally every quarter. And more importantly than the question of, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to recommend people to work at Thinkific? More important than that were the open-ended questions of like, what are we doing well so we don't accidentally mess them up? What should we stop doing? What should we start doing? And what should we keep doing? And we first introduced that survey process in, it would have been the summer of 2016. And every single quarter from then until now have continued that process of making sure that we're echoing back, this is what you said, this is what we heard, and this is what we're doing as a result. And it sounds very simple, and yet it is such an opportunity for transformation, for shared buy-in, and for co-creation of what would be our culture. If I had sat down myself, and even if I had afforded myself a whole bunch of time to think about what are all the things I could do that would make this the best culture in the world, I could never have come to even a fraction of what we were able to build because we were asking. It's that cycle of giving people a voice, echoing back, like, this is what we heard and this is what we saw were the top things. We can't fix all the problems. We can't do all the things. But let's pick one or two with a goal every single quarter of just making things better. And that has been the single practice that has really supported our team and culture over this time. That's great. What are a couple other examples of things that people came back with, like, what kind of things? Yeah, almost everything that touches our team and culture at some point was reflected in that survey. So we heard things around, you know, we want to have more transparency on pay. We heard concerns about gendered language and job descriptions. And so we made those adjustments. We heard the team wanting to feel more connected to our local community. And so we did things like volunteering. We heard team members looking for uh, cross-functional learning opportunities as they thought about their own careers and where else they might want to go. And so we were able to introduce programs to enable the kind of movement internally. We certainly heard lots of feedback around the product and our customer too. Things like we want to see more diversity in our creators. We want to get to know them more. We would love to have some of our creators coming and talking at kickoff, for example, internally. All of those kinds of things that really created an avenue and a way to ensure that every member of our team had a voice into everything and anything that was impacting their experience internally and how we grew as a company and could feel that they heard, seen, and could see that we acted and aimed to just make things better as a result of that feedback. Yeah. And when you were saying creators, I think uh, just for the audience, that means the customers that engage Thinkific to provide the learning platform. So for those of you that don't know their model quite as well, that's what that means. So at the largest, how many people are employed? Yeah, we started the pandemic as a team of 115, and that ballooned like much of tech through a crazy period. And we hit 500 people in March of last year. That is a lot of growth for just a few years. It was pretty wild. And then like much of tech, we went through a pretty significant contraction following that as well. So we went through a layoff of about 100 people in the spring of 2022, and then a smaller layoff in January of this year. And so today the team sits around 300 people. So that's a lot of growth, a lot of shrinking, a lot of change. It kind of leads me to a question I was thinking about, which is, what do you think was different about how you all were leading the company? It's interesting as the team has grown and is, you know, two years post-public company, it's certainly a bit of a different beast than it once was. But early on, we were really just a group of people going heads down, building what we imagined could be for and in support of our customers. And so I would say for a really long time, 
it didn't feel like a company. It just felt like it's like a whole bunch of people banding together to work on this really cool project. And it was really, really clear who we were there to serve. And when every decision is in support of, you know, what is right for our creators and we put them above us, I think that that certainly led to good outcomes. And there was a bit of, you know, that idea that if we build for them and we solve for them, you know, the business will sort itself out. I found that to be true. And you're describing the classic first stage of a startup, which is all about product market fit, which is all about the customers and what do they want from us? What will they pay for? What do they need to buy that will help them with whatever problem they're solving for? So that's classic stage one, let's say, pleasant chaos or <laughs> a certain kind of chaos anyway that is really exciting to lots of entrepreneurs. Then you get to that second stage where all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, we have to scale. We can't keep doing everything afresh the first time. So that second stage of systematizing, did you have something like that as well when you were doing the scaling? And what did you have to do differently during that stage? I think the one experience that I'd had before that I was really grateful for that I actually didn't mention when I rattled through some of my previous experiences, but I spent a number of years at a telecommunications company from the time of dial-up internet through the launch of high-speed internet. And that meant that I'd previously had the experience of being a team of 40 doing dial-up technical support. Nobody in the company knew who we were or what we did. At that point, it was just a telecommunications company. Everybody had been there for 30 years doing wireline. And then it turned out the internet was a bit of a thing. And so that team of 40 grew in a few short years to a team of 1,600. And it was very much like operating at that point in a funded startup because we never had to worry about how we were going to pay the bills, but boy, did we have to figure out how to move quickly. We were like in a big, very large 30,000 people public company. Everything we were doing operated much faster than the organization was set up to support. So when I needed to hire new team members and I went to HR, they're like, oh, no, like we're planning for Q1 next year. And I'm like, well, I need like 10 people in a class on Monday. And so that meant that I was running like I just ran my own transit ads and like ads in the local papers. Like I had to bypass all of the corporate infrastructure for things like hiring and how do we onboard and how do we do all of these things? Because the company wasn't designed to move at the speed that we needed to move in order to scale as quickly. And so it turns out that having the experience of scaling teams really quickly would come in handy when we found ourselves in the position where we were scaling our teams at Thinkific. What were a couple of the leadership things you had to do differently in that stage compared to the first stage? Yeah, good question. It comes to like systematization and processes, yes, but not so rigid as too fixed, right? Because everything is still really evolving. So maybe two of the things that I would point to as key through that time, one was about language and building like a glossary internally of how we talk about growth and strategy and problems, etc. Because one of my observations at that point, sort of more conceptually, but now I see it quite a bit more, is that business is actually quite simple. And when I talk to founders who have five team members and I talk to founders who have 500 team members, the root of the problems that these business owners are trying to solve are often the same. The difference is communication and all of the layers of playing telephone in the middle that actually make it seem much more complex when we're dealing with bigger organizations. And so when we're thinking about problems, not as business problems, but actually as communication problems, then the best things that I found to do to navigate that time are actually around communication. And so part of that was just having a shared vernacular. So literally building the glossary internally of like, this is how we talk about, you know, goals internally. And this is how we talk about tactical versus operational and versus strategic problems and where each of those sets of problems belongs in meetings and when it doesn't. So doing some of those language things really helped our team talk the same talk. One of the things about that is people maybe don't think about it, but the language of an organization, that's part of the artifacts of the culture. And, you know, the same words can be used very differently by different people. And taking that time to have a glossary and a, a way to onboard people to say, you know, here in this place, here's how we do it just to help you get up to speed quicker. I think most people really do appreciate that kind of handholding in the beginning. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing was how do we reduce friction where one person is talking about OKRs and somebody else is trying to roll out goals like with a different language in their team is like, that's not going to work. Let's reduce friction. 
Let's figure out where we can streamline and let's reduce mental overhead from our teams in general. And then alongside that was figure out and ensure that we had good rhythms around building drum beats in our organization so that we weren't solving problems one off. And so an example, of course, being the quarterly ENPS that I mentioned before, is that if you only do an, an ENPS when there's a problem, then all of a sudden it's nowhere near as effective, but also it requires all of this like problem solving energy to tackle the problem every time it comes up versus saying, you know what, this is like a regular thing. Like, let's build the system that just makes it happen like clockwork every quarter. Then we don't need to invest energy in that. We can be investing our problem solving energy in the problems that need to be solved while ensuring that we're building those resilient layers of best practice into our organization. Yeah. And let me define the term. So ENPS, Employee Net Promoter Score, which just tells essentially what we were talking about earlier. The number itself reflects how likely are you to recommend this company is a great place to work for someone you care about, more or less. Is that about right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just for those who may not be as familiar with that term, that's ENPS. I'm sure there were challenges as you were scaling so fast. What did you have to learn about yourself as a person and then a leader? And then how did you work that into your leadership style? What is particularly unique to founders is for any role in a company, you need to be growing at or ahead of the rate of growth of the company personally just to stand still. And so when you're talking about a company that's growing 50% or whatever year over year, this is wild, right? When you're, in terms of the amount of personal growth that's required. And then even more so for founders or C-suite, you are spending an awful lot of time doing all of the self-work as well, asking for feedback in formalized ways from team and peers to ensure that, you know, I'm showing up as I intend to show up. And more importantly, when and where I am making mistakes, dropping balls, or not having the impact that I intend. Another really effective thing that we did as a leadership team was we got executive coaching. And so my executive coach, he started off as my executive coach and then quickly became also my CEO, business partner's executive coach, and then all of the C-suite, <laughs> their executive coach. And as you were doing that as the executive team, how many layers of your leadership were you incorporating or including in that? At the senior leadership team, we were using an outside coach. We had another coach that we would bring in who would lead our quarterly strategy sessions just to sort of like herd the cats of our leadership team there. And then in terms of those same kinds of tools, we delivered in-house programming across our whole team. So part of new hire onboarding was actually to have them go through some of that work to sort of better understand themselves and the work styles and preferences of the folks that they're going to be working with. We had internal coaching and internal mentorship programs sort of formally within the company. So there was lots of that across the organization. Which makes a lot of sense to me if I think about it, because the purpose of the company is to provide a learning management system to others. And so it makes sense in a way that you opted to invest quite a bit in your own development and learning. Absolutely. And so going back to, you know, you rattled off some of the culture and team awards that we won over the years, those investments, both formally and informally, and we also had learning budgets to ensure that we were creating that opportunity for learning and growth. And so back to the personal, what did you have to come face to face with in yourself? Oh, my gosh. Like, how much time did we have? <laughs> Just one or two things. <laughs> We're yeah. just giving examples for people to say, oh, right. I don't think about that one too often. So like, what kind of things? Yeah, you know, we're all just flawed humans at the end of the day that are just trying to be better. And so I think maybe two really quickly is like many high achiever individual contributors, I had what is a somewhat typical struggle to go from what does it look like to just I'll do it myself to being an effective leader that is not micromanaging and diving in deeper than I should. And I know from leading others that that can be a very typical struggle to go from high-functioning individual contributor to a really effective, supported leader and didn't always navigate that in the best way and, you know, ruffle some feathers along the way because we're all just trying to do our very best. Yeah, you know, definitely. I always say the same thing. We're all flawed humans, so we're doing the best we can. And so what did you come to terms with or what did you have to realize about others or yourself or whatever? I think it was really 
diving into and better understanding like how I think and operate is not how other people think and operate. And that's not a weakness on their part, but an opportunity to figure out how do we better work together and approach things in a way that leverages both strengths. And so it was a bit of a child by fire deep dive into what does that look like and how do we understand and then leverage everybody's individual strengths and the recognition that that does look different. And so that was the big one. And I've been telling folks like right now I'm on a bit of a sabbatical since moving to an advisory role with Thinkific. And now I've got all the time in the world for like the self-work and the introspection and making all sorts of cool things. But it's very different when you're trying to do some of that at the same time as working like crazy and growing like crazy and everything else is actually also going on. So it's a lot to stack on top of each other. So one thing I am projecting into your situation, which may not be true, is you probably had to develop a little bit of self-compassion because it's awfully hard to do everything at once. And yet you still have this endless to-do list. You have results that you're accountable for. You have people that want things, need things, deserve things from you, and you're trying to figure out yourself. So is that projection right? That projection is right. And I think that going back to the comment about being like a high-functioning individual contributor, the recognition and the shift at some point to recognizing that I actually can't do it all. I spent my whole life being able to do it all. And at a certain point, in order to be effective is you have to recognize that there's always going to be a thousand fires that are burning. There's always going to be a thousand things that are worth doing. It's not a question of what's worth doing or not worth doing. It's all worth doing, but we can't do it all. And so I like to use Warren Buffett's two list rule, which is you take that list of whatever, let's say it's your top 25 things to do, and you stack rank them in terms of priority, and you draw a hard line after five or four or three and say, this is what I'm working on list, the top few things on that list. And everything else is, this is my do not touch at any cost list. And you have to let those fires burn because if you don't, you could bust your ass for six months and have 25 things not complete, but further along, which means you've accomplished nothing. Or you go heads down, solve the biggest fires first, recognize that we're always letting other fires burn, like cross those fully off the list and then move down. And that was a huge shift for me. I love that metaphor. And it lends itself to some other conversations from the past episodes, one of which was we don't want to burn the ship down. And so you have to figure out which of those fires are going to be big enough to cause a problem. Like what's existential here? And I think it's a great way to think about priorities, especially in those early days. Yeah. And especially as a leader, when they're often coming from team members and they're coming to you with the panic in their eyes. And now you've got a bunch of different people coming with a bunch of different problems. And for them, it's everything. And you have to start to get really good at saying, OK, like I hear you. I see you. We can't fight all of these fires at the same time, but how do we make those rapid fire decisions to be able to say, like, this is what we're doing and we're letting that fire burn? And to ring fence the remaining fires so they can be slightly contained. So it is a very, very big juggling act, no question. And it's great that you can articulate that. Now, when you became a public company, what changed? I think that, you know, one of the realities of public company life is twofold. I mean, there's the quarterly reporting cycle, which puts a very different lens and timeline on what we're doing. And I think continue to sort of balance the how do we build for the long term while ensuring that we're reporting and such on a quarterly basis. And that is a different rhythm and cadence than we had before. And then the other thing that I really noticed was just being at that level as a company meant that the folks that we were able to hire had hit a new level and we were able to bring in some really incredible talent, but we had come from that sort of founder startup world. And so you know, having to navigate some of the cultural differences, even in terms of like people who had sort of always been at big companies without any of that founder entrepreneur DNA and sort of navigating how to balance those two worlds. I thought you were almost going to say how to broach the subject with them. And so I kind of want to go there and say, how did you do that? Because I can imagine listeners everywhere going, I have two of those people and I don't know what to do. <laughs> right? Because they come in with skills and expertise and perspective, which we want. But at the same time, we don't want to ruin the magic, whatever the magic is. And it's often so intangible. 
yeah, it's funny because I'm toying with the idea. At some point, I'm going to write a book. I might write it this fall. I would say that the entire book is about this very topic, is how to navigate the balance of those two types of people and types of projects and energies within a company. Because the reality is, is that when founding a company and starting a company at the beginning, everything is sort of that, we'll call it builder energy. So everything is zero to one, figure it out the first time, hustle, founder, entrepreneur energy. And as you get things set up and sort of going, it turns into this sort of like operating motion. And so even some of the examples I gave before. So at first you have to figure out what is our mechanism around employee feedback. But once we know it, it's like, well, let's not solve this problem every time. Let's actually build a drumbeat. And in our case, it was around those quarterly engagement surveys. Well, now somebody in the organization, their job is quarterly engagement surveys. They got a job description that said your job is quarterly engagement surveys. They were planted a playbook that said this is basically how we do them. And yes, you can tweak and play with them. But at the end of the day, this is what you're operating in the company. And that's a very different energy than figure out how to deal with and figure out how to build culture, right? And so at the beginning, it's 100% builder energy. And how are we building and how are we doing things here? And then as you build these layers within your company, over time, a greater and greater percentage of the company's overall efforts is actually going to this operating side of this equation rather than that builder side. And one of the things I've observed is that most people can actually follow either a strong builder or a strong operator. But your strongest builders and your strongest operators are so fundamentally opposite from each other that they don't even really know that the other person exists because the other person's job would like be their personal kryptonite. So like if you were to tell a founder or a builder like me that you're going to hand me a job description and three years later, I'm going to be basically doing like for all intents and purposes, the same thing that I was doing three years prior. And that's my personal definition of hell on earth. Like do not do that to me. Right. But similarly, is if you take somebody that is like killer at that, running the systems and running the process, and yes, they're still going to adapt and be resilient when the 15% of the time they need to lean into like the blue sky. But if you were to hand them a big problem like, hey, go figure out how to navigate culture here, like some big weighty problem where, oh, there's no job description, there's no playbook. There's no nothing. And there's no single right answer. There's no right answer. Like that's also there. It's like, you want me to do what? Like, it's like these two things are just so fundamentally different. But it's not just the people, it's also how we lead those kinds of projects, how we evaluate ROI internally for those two different kinds of projects, how we build goals and build teams around them with those two types of projects. And in order to continue to grow, the company still has to build new things and explore new opportunities. And you need to have some of those builder motions happening in the organization. Otherwise, you become stagnant. But as the company becomes more and more of that like operating sort of energy, if we're not careful, we can lose that builder hustle energy for the projects where it's needed if we don't create that understanding of those two groups and different language, et cetera. Now, that's a fascinating thing to think about. And it brought to mind a guy named Lou Adler. Do you know Lou Adler's work? Not off the top. He actually has terrifically interesting work, but the thing it reminded me of is he describes four kinds of jobs. One is thinkers who produce ideas. One is builders who turn ideas into reality. The third one is improvers whose expertise is making what we have better. And the fourth one is producers who do the work that is repeatable in goods and services. So it might you might enjoy exploring that a bit more deeply as you're thinking about this yeah, my version is like the scrappy version, which combines thinkers, builders, and improvers are all in the first bucket, and then producers are now go execute. But yes, 100%. So you might actually love to see that. And I think, I mean, he's really, I read a few of his blog posts like maybe 10 years ago, and it fundamentally changed the way I think about hiring into jobs, because mm -hmm. you really do need different kinds of people for different kinds of roles, as you're pointing out. So that's another thing that comes with scaling, I think, is you have the luxury to take a step back and say, huh, all these people are not the same. Yes. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to ask you about, Miranda, is often there's this myth that you can't really connect company culture um, and results or performance, you know, directly to say, well, these soft aspects of our culture deliver these hard numbers. And I wonder... How do you connect the dots on that from your own leadership 
experience and also from the time at Thinkific or elsewhere? Yeah, that's a great question. And I wish that there were really clear answers. I think some of the metrics that you can draw a clear line, you know, around things like team member retention and also like ability to hire. And so that was one of the things that as we grew, we found like our single biggest lead source effectively for um, successful new hires was our existing team. And so that always brought us way better candidates because folks were out there actually talking to their friends. So that was a really big one. So then it's like tenure, ability to hire. And then it is the intangibles, which as you just said, is like, that is the challenge. It is the intangibles. And I think that some of the evidence of having an engaged, committed team especially through a lot of our high growth would be it's a tech product. Tech products go down at times. And I can't tell you the number of sort of late night um, Slack parties that happened because it's like something went wrong. There were a whole bunch of us in that Slack room or on that open Zoom call or in the office pre-pandemic who would come in and be there and say, okay, I'm here. Like I'm ready to lend a hand. And when you've got a team that believes deeply in what we're doing and doing it together, that's what happens as a result. And everybody just says, let me roll up my sleeves and how and where can I help? And that's something that's particularly tricky, as you alluded to earlier, as the company grows. So anything you can think of that you all did well to kind of retain that dedication and that loyalty? Yeah, it was tricky through growth for us. We've had a couple of major layoffs, like many of the tech industry, over the last year in particular. And I would say that that is one of the things that has suffered. And it compounded by the fact that we were all remote. And so there were fewer personal connections and then some personal connections lost because of those reductions. And so I don't want to make it out like we have all of this figured out. The pandemic aside, I think that creating opportunity for connection internally, cross-functionally was always really important. But then also one of the things that I didn't touch on before, but part of culture is how we show up with and for each other. And it's one thing as leaders, for example, to just tell our team that this is a place that believes in transparency and believes in psychological safety and believes in, you know, showing up as our whole selves. And those words don't mean anything if we don't live them. And so some of the things that we did over time is we really tried to ensure that we we're showing up as our whole human selves as leaders as well. And so, you know, when things didn't go according to plan, talked about how they didn't go according to plan. And even things like there were times that I talked about my mental health or things like that. And just recognizing, especially through the pandemic at times, trying to ensure that I was able to connect with my team in a deeply human way and not just saying, oh, it's safe for you to show up as yourself here, but doing what I could to show up as myself here to reinforce the idea that we are just a group of humans who are coming together in a shared mission. That's great. I think that's a powerful approach. So one of the things we're kind of getting to be known for on this podcast is to get a little personal and dig into the tender places, only in service of trying to save somebody else the pain of it. And so if we peel open your kimono just a tiny bit, what's a story of a really challenging leadership experience you faced along the way? And then how did you work through it? I talked before about being a sort of recovering, highly effective individual contributor and trying to figure out what does it look like to go from that to being an effective leader. And at times of stress, I would certainly hold myself to like a pretty high standard of output, et cetera. And one not particularly great moment was a few years ago now, pre-pandemic, but we were really pushing within our marketing team and working on some campaigns, getting in close to the Christmas holidays and for a variety of reasons and stress. And at that time, perhaps a little bit less self-awareness, I was pushing the team to work longer days than anyone should have been and for more outcomes than was probably viable and doing it in the Christmas season, which is not helpful to anyone. And so hindsight being 2020, is that ability to sort of say, a step aside from that. And I certainly got feedback at the time that sort of was the mirror that I needed to be like, oh, hey, yeah, this isn't fair to the team. And frankly, like I was in a place of burnout, which is part of what was causing that as well. And so that being said, creating opportunity for the team to give feedback and trying to do everything to ensure that we're creating enough of a safe space that they feel that they can give feedback. 
And then also that ability as a leader to just simply say, this wasn't fair, this wasn't right, and I messed up. And thank you for the feedback. And I'm sorry that you had to give the feedback. And I'm sorry if anybody felt that they couldn't give the feedback. And just the recognition, going back to that idea that we are all human. We are all just here to do good work together and that we don't always get it right. But it certainly would be a story of not a finer leadership moment of mine. Well, I appreciate you sharing it because I don't know a leader who hasn't had a moment just like that, myself included. And, you know, one of the most crushing days of my own leadership experience was when one of my team members said to me, the thing is, you cut me off and I think you don't care about my ideas and I don't feel valued. And I was like, ah, that's like the opposite of what is true. But it was exactly how I was acting. And, you know, we just have to be willing to look at ourselves and go, oops, how do I fix it? What can I do to repair that relationship, if you will? So thank you for sharing that. I'm sure lots of people are like, oh, me too. And that mirror that helps you look at it, what kind of mirror helps you in that moment? Yeah, I actually don't even think it was like direct to me. I think it was feedback that then went to my business partner who was able to come back and be the mirror back to me. Because sometimes at that time, I was also not always the greatest at hearing the feedback. And so sometimes we need the moment where it's like, hey, I'm trying to give you feedback and I'm not feeling heard. I'm telling you something you actually need to hear. Yeah. You know, the tactic after that, I remember after that actually telling my team, tell me that you're giving me feedback because then I can at least use it as the trigger of like, oh, hey, this is feedback and I need to stop and really just shut my mouth and listen. Because when you're moving really quickly, it can be hard. But definitely being that mirror for each other. And I built that over time with my business partners, but also with my team. And then sometimes, like I said, with an external coach to be able to debrief, but building all of that and then ensuring that I was leaning into and using those tools was certainly a long process. So were you always the kind of person that really wanted to have self-improvement or is this something that you had to pick up along the way? Good question. I think that I've always been very growth-minded. And yes, I've always been about self-improvement, but probably for different reasons. So I would say that, again, as the high-functioning overachiever, I was always trying to improve because I was the honor student and I could do and tackle anything you threw at me. But the idea of improving and working on myself so that the experience of others around me was improved, that certainly came as a result of being in that position to lead others. Because before that, it was all self-improvement for my benefit, and it became self-improvement for the benefit of my team and those around me. And just imagine for a second, I have this image of like 80 years ago, whether this was something that was on leaders' minds as much. And if not, what in the world was the experience like of working in those organizations? So it does seem really different from today, or at least for the kinds of people that we talk with on this podcast. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't know that it was 80 years ago. I think that there's unfortunately many organizations that still operate that way today. I did my MBA a few years ago. Actually, at the beginning of Thinkific, I was still working on my MBA because I was that kind of overachiever. But for most of the history of business, to your comment about companies 80 years ago, has approached business as mechanical machines. So in a mechanical machine, you build and you design one point a carburetor and the carburetor's job is to take in the fuel and to aerosolize it so that it can be combusted or whatever. But when you install a carburetor, 10 years later, if you peek back into that engine, it's basically still doing the same job. And that's how we not just built businesses, but also taught management and taught how to lead people. But the reality is, is that businesses have never been mechanical machines. Businesses are human machines. And business school has only just recently acknowledge the fact that these are human machines and human machines are unpredictable and emotional, but at the same time, creative and self-evolving and so much smarter than we could ever do on our own. My comment before about if I had sat down to map out what does it look like to build incredible culture, I could have never touched a fraction of what we were able to build because we did it with and for our team. And so really like continuing to think about our teams and leading our teams as the beautiful, messy, like innovative, curious, gross-minded humans that they are is really the big opportunity. Yeah. And also the great joy. But I do think that's the whole essence of at least how I think about leading large, which is taking 
the opportunity to build something and infusing in it the responsibility for building something that you're proud of. So on a little different note, you stepped away from a public company executive role. Was anything scary to you about giving up that role at Thinkific or like everything? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Everything is scary about that. I think, you know, a little bit to the comment before about builders and operators and the different energies that exist within a company at different times. And I am very much a zero to one builder, entrepreneur, hustle energy. And I am so proud of the work that we've done and that Thinkific continues to do. But there was a moment of recognition that my impact on the trajectory of the business at the first part of that journey and then looking ahead for the next part of the journey looked very, very different. And yes, if I was still there on a day-to-day basis, still continue to impact the trajectory of that organization. But my strengths and what I'm good at were no longer what the company necessarily was needing as we were doing more and more of like, how do we operate and build resilience for the long term? And my ability to influence the future trajectory just wasn't at the same level as it once was. And if that was true, it meant that I had a job as opposed to had a business and I am not a very good employee. So it was really timed for me to say, like, let's pass this off and I can be the cheerleader and I can continue to be the greatest fan of our customers and what we do. But it was time for me to create space for something new. That's really super mature of you. It takes a lot of self-development, I think, to be able to come to that place. But good for you and good for the company that you could do that. And now I know you're kind of looking ahead, maybe a book, maybe something else. Thinking back, what do you wish you had known at the beginning of your career that you now know? This one's really, really simple. Actually, I'm going to tell you a bit of a story. I love stories. I had the privilege of hearing Barack Obama speak. After he was no longer president, he was speaking about leadership. And he talked about how he had incredible teams. And so when problems came up, There was teams and teams of very, very bright people who could solve those problems. And only when a problem didn't have an answer did it come to him. And so when problems landed on his desk, they were there because there's no right answer. There's no perfect solution. There's no magical like, aha, we're just going to do this and then everybody's going to be happy. Ones that came to him were, well, we just need to make a call. And what he said about that was, the recognition and being able to lean into the fact that you can't make it perfect and you can't make the right decision, but we can make it better. And so just that recognition that if you just show up every day and instead of trying to come up with the exact right answer, bring your full self and just try to make it better, that that is the best we can do. That must have been just an incredibly moving moment. Absolutely. Wow. And it kind of goes to this point that, you know, I was thinking about earlier, which is That's what happens to great leaders is the decisions that leaders have to make come to them, not because they're easy, but because there isn't an easy answer. There isn't enough information. And it's so stressful, but that's the responsibility that we hold when we sit in those C-suite chairs to be able to do this. And I very much appreciate the way you just described that mindset of show up, bring your whole self do your best and let's make it a little better off at the end of the day than it was at the beginning of the day. So that's just really powerful. All right. Here's the question I ask every single guest. The title of the podcast is To Lead is Human. And what does that mean to you as a leader? Business is just a group of people who have made the decision to come together and work on the same thing for a while. And so the more that we can recognize that no one has all of the answers, that we're all at least a little bit flawed and collectively agree that we're just here to make it better. That is what it means to, I believe, lead and lead effectively. And so I love that thought of thinking about leadership and the humans, the beautiful humans that make up our companies and how we come together. Yes. And ourselves. And we ourselves are no more perfect than anyone else. So, and sometimes less so. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes quite a bit less so. So, As we're wrapping up, is there any other topic or thought that you wanted to share or a tip that you might offer to listeners? Yeah, like I said, is the the drumbeats around team member feedback were integral to doing that. And maybe more specifically is that we need to, as leaders, iterate and focus on everything that's touching our internal teams just as much as we iterate and focus on what's impacting our customers and their experience. And so 
yes, it means that we have to balance a lot of things, but we need to work on and improve and make our experience for our team just a little bit better as we go. Otherwise, we won't have a product and customers to be able to serve. So it's really about that work. That's a perfect place to wrap up. So I just want to say a big thank you to you, Miranda, for the funny, fun, lively conversation today and the inspiring thoughts about growing into your leadership and moving past it and bringing with you all that you've learned. So I imagine there will be listeners that would like to keep up with what you do next. So where and how do people find you? Yes, I'd love that. So MirandaLevers.com is the best access point. So Miranda and then Levers, L-I-E-V-E-R-S. So MirandaLevers.com and on Instagram under the same. And I would love to hear from anyone who is building and scaling and navigating all of that and looking for a sympathetic ear would be thrilled to have you reach out. That's great. And I look forward to further conversations, you and I, about these stages of growth of these companies and the kinds of energies and people that thrive at each one of them. So that's going to be really fun in the future. So thanks so much again for being here. Thanks, Sharon. This was really delightful. Please stay with us for a moment, and I'll share some takeaways and coaching tips to help you up-level your own leadership, starting right away. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. So Miranda illustrated a couple of really important things that I'm going to highlight for you, and then I'll share that tip as promised. The first thing is she illustrated some really important and I think often underappreciated benefits of getting regular feedback, and that is finding out what you did that worked. You can think about this as moving from unconscious competence, where you're good at something but you don't really know what you did that made it work for the others, to conscious competence, where you become aware of what it is you can do to recreate that benefit again and again. In addition, it bakes in continuous improvement from the very beginning. So if you're collecting regular feedback, say quarterly, as Miranda's company did, there can be one thing or two things that employees have mentioned that you think are important to improve, and you have that happening on a regular cadence. And the really important underappreciated benefit that Miranda shared was she was able to learn what she personally needed to tackle to keep herself growing faster than the company was growing, which, as she points out, she thinks is super important for anyone who's a founder or owner of a company. And I agree with her on that. The second really important category of takeaways is about language. Miranda talked about how they created a glossary, the common language we use here. And it was important to have that shared language, not just so people were meaning the same things by the words they were using, but also what the cadence of activities were that people could expect. So obviously having that glossary helps with onboarding, but it also really helps integrate the new leaders that are hired in as the company scales, who are those stage two specialists, those systematizers and systems builders, with those stage one, I love the chaos of a startup specialist. And it helps to clarify what you think is the essence of your culture. By what you choose to put in that glossary, you've highlighted, here are the things we value. Here are the things we're willing to emphasize and stick to, even if it causes us a little bit of challenge in other parts of our business. Number three, and I'm pretty sure this really stood out to you too, is let the fires burn, but choose them very intentionally. So just to recap for you, the idea is there are dozens 
of things that aren't working at any given time in your organization, prioritize the ones that are existential threats that could cause the company to go down in flames, as it were. Thing one, tell everybody, these are the ones we have to put out. We're going to get rid of these. And then ring fence the other ones. It might be hard for the head of one function to understand why their issue isn't of the topmost importance. However, when you share the idea of existentially important fires, that can help everyone understand, okay, we'll get that one done and then we'll move on. And then, of course, the third thing is keep an eye on the smoldering to make sure the one you put out stays put out. And here's your coaching tip for the day. Ask for specific feedback about what you're doing as a leader that people are finding helpful. And especially find out how does it help them. Build your own conscious awareness of what you're unconsciously good at so you can bake it into your everyday behaviors. If you want extra credit, I'd love for you also to identify the existentially risky fires that are burning right now in your business or organization and introduce your team to this concept so they can help ensure that the right fires are tended, contained, and snuffed out. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead Is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G large.com. To Lead Is Human is part of the Mira CFM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Andrew Chapman assembled the episode. And Danny Eaney is our executive producer. So you don't miss upcoming episodes. Please follow us on Miracy FM's YouTube channel or your favorite podcast player. If you learned something useful, please take a minute to leave us a starred review and tell us what you learned and then tell your colleagues about it. The more leaders we can reach, the better for everyone in organizations today. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on To Lead is Human. Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Muskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts, no shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed. 
for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing, and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.